Chapter 9. Troubleshooting. Is this really worth it? It's a big decision to actively design and shift a culture. Perhaps after reading all this, you're asking the question, is this even worth it? It's a great question to ponder before taking it on. The simple answer is this. If you love it, you must fix it. If you don't love it, you must get out. Don't medicate with culture change. Even more important than how to create a great culture is the reason behind it. What is your big why? The why is what drives it all and ultimately determines what will happen. When people say they want to get quote-unquote buy-in, what they're really saying is that they hope another person is moved by the reason why they are proposing something. The technique or method to actually implement that why can change. I was coaching a woman, we'll call her Jane, who had a lot of great ideas for her company's culture. But as she talked about them, I could detect a tone of frustration in her voice. I asked her to tell me why she wanted those changes in the company. Often, you'll have to ask the question why several times to get to the real reason. After enough whys, she finally answered, because that kind of culture would be exciting to me. Great, now we know her values. And now we know why culture change was important to her. But that's not the final step. Now tell me, I asked, how much of your life outside of work is exciting? And there was a pause until she finally admitted that none of her life was exciting. This was truly important because with this question, I could now see that she was looking for the culture to create a shift in her own life. We call this medicating with culture change because she was trying to change her own life through her team. But the only way to shift a culture is by having something to give and something to share. Otherwise, people get the sense that something is off with you. Unconsciously, Jane did not feel very authentic. She felt needy. She came across as someone trying to sell her idea of what culture should be. That's why people use that phrase buy-in, because they're not only trying to sell us. They're trying to sell themselves that this will ultimately be the tool to solve their problem. As a next step, I asked Jane about the things in her past that she found exciting. We created a list, and I asked her to start doing those things before we even approached a culture change. She did, and the transformation was fabulous. Her entire energy shifted. She was no longer frustrated. She was excited about life, and now she wanted to give that energy to her team. Are you starting to see the difference? So now, think about a shift you want in your culture. What do you want to be different? Why do you want that? What's the deeper reason? Keep pushing yourself until you find a deeper emotion. Now ask yourself, do I already have this feeling in my life, outside of work? If yes, great. Then bring that energy with you. If not, do whatever it takes to get it. Why isn't this working? There tend to be three reasons why a culture change or any kind of change is not working. These tend to be the reasons why someone says they want something, and yet somehow it's just not happening. One, you don't know how. Sometimes we just don't have the skills to do it, and it may take looking to a mentor or a book or a class to give you the confidence we need to really achieve it. But even when you do obtain the skills, sometimes it's not enough, because the real reason is one of these other two. Two, you're scared. Fear is often the real reason because there is no right way. Even knowing the quote-unquote right way doesn't guarantee our success. 
Notice that whatever is the right way is right because we believe it is right. There is no guaranteed formula for success, but there are certainly guaranteed formulas for failing, and the number one reason for that is not even starting or trying. Three, you actually don't want to. Do you really want this? One time a leader at a company was struggling. We had taught him all the information. He knew what to do, and it didn't scare him but he just couldn't figure out why he was not making the changes to fix the culture. I heard something deeper as he was talking, and I finally asked him point blank, do you truly give a shit about your people? He was shocked to hear the question, but more shocked to realize his answer was, you know, I really don't know if I do. So this final reason is that sometimes people really don't want to do it, but they either can't see it or can't admit it. Another powerful question to ascertain if this is the issue is, do you wish you could just leave? Or try this approach. What question would I have to ask you for your answer to be hell yeah? The hypnosis of language. What tends to hold us back is the hypnosis of language. Whenever someone says blank is hard, they are hypnotized by an abstraction of words and they're trying to hypnotize you too by getting you to believe it's true. Let's use an example. Culture change is really hard. Yes. With that level of abstraction, it doesn't matter if the statement is true or false. There are no words we can work with. If we ask this person to be more specific, the conversation may go something like this. Culture change is hard. What's specifically hard about it? Well, communications among people. What specifically about communications? Well, between departments. What specific departments? Well, sales and product development, they are totally at odds. How are they specifically at odds? Sales promises the world to the customer, and then product development feels like they can't fulfill it. Okay, great. Where does the breakdown happen? There's nothing to break down. They just don't ever talk. Ah, well, what would it look like if they were talking? And the conversation would go on like this until we finally got to a solution that made actual change possible. I'll tell you that the end of that particular story was creating a space for those two groups to talk to each other in an unstructured way. Yes, they needed meetings about specific products, but the breakdown was really happening because they saw each other as departments, another abstraction, instead of as people. And the only way to change that would be to bring them together as people without the requirement of talking about specific products. Oddly enough, in that space of freedom, people often come up with their best ideas. The end of buy-in. There is one word I wish I could eliminate from all corporate vocabulary. In fact, I challenge people, telling them, if you simply remove this word from your vocabulary, you will see huge results with your team. That word is buy-in. As we stated previously, language is the programming code of culture. And the compound word, buy-in, structures our interactions based on the paradigm of selling. So what does it mean? It means two fundamental but false premises are in place. False premise number one, there is a limited resource at play. When we use the analogy of buying and selling, then people think about money, meaning that there's a limited resource to give away. But notice that we're not talking about people's time or money. We are simply talking about agreement. And how can we ever run out of that resource? False premise number two. 
I have to sell you on this. Do you like being sold things? How many sales calls have you enjoyed? To use the language of selling is totally appropriate if we are talking about money. But when we use the analogy of selling within culture, we are getting into mind frames of manipulation. We are trying to get into people's heads and convince them that they want something they don't necessarily need. The best word to replace it with is alignment. But wait, keep in mind that this term can either be impotent if you're talking up the ladder or easily abusive if you're talking down the ladder. The reason is because the word alignment means nothing unless you are making a direct correlation with the agreed-upon principle or value. Think about it this way. If you don't explicitly state what you're aligning with, then there is a huge assumption there. If you ask for alignment without stating the reference, then what you are really saying is, you better align with me. And what you really want to say to be effective is, we'd like to be in alignment with, say, the core value, principle, or goal. This is frustrating. The source of your greatest frustration actually holds the key to your success. And this is not something out of a fortune cookie. I was hosting a panel discussion among some of the best brands in the world discussing cultures. The stories were very different, but I noticed a theme running through them. Each executive was frustrated. It was an interesting contrast because these brands were very successful. As I listened to each story, I could hear that the solutions they found were not coming from outside the company. They were not even coming from outside the problem itself. They were actually coming from within the frustrations themselves. Take the early days of Zappos, when the company did not have millions of dollars to spend on advertising to become well-known. As we saw earlier, this limiting factor was the highest leverage point because instead, the company bet the customer service would drive word of mouth. Ultimately, the word of mouth created more customers than advertising at a very minimal cost. The same could be said of Apple's history. The limiting factor in their highly protected proprietary software was that they only held 5% of the market compared to PCs. Rather than fighting that reality, the company leveraged its successful systems in other markets, music players, phones, tablets, and that resulted in their becoming worth more than any other computer maker, and their share of the PC market tripled by 2012. Frustration is blocked passion. It's tempting to get upset with people who are frustrated because they sound like whiners, but the reality is that they care more deeply than anyone else. They have the potential to turn into your greatest advocates. Start thinking of it this way. Frustration is gold. When you find someone frustrated, you have just hit a gold mine. Get in touch with that passion that's getting blocked. When you look for the passion, you will stop seeing that person as a complainer. You'll be able to connect based on values, and the conversation will open up to possibilities. I'm stuck in the parent trap. Managers and leaders have great intentions. They tend to be similar to parents who just want their kids to be happy. However, they end up doing all the work and spoiling their employees. For example, I spoke with a manager who attended one of Zappos' boot camps and sent out a survey asking his employees what they wanted. Universally, they said better communication. They wanted to know more about initiatives and what each group was doing. So the manager selected a group of three people to create a newsletter. The group did a great job on the first one, but then subsequent issues took a long time, 
and they didn't hit their deadlines. And of course, management became frustrated. Can you diagnose a few things that went wrong with the manager's approach? First, the managers assumed that management was responsible for fixing all of these communication issues. But culture is always co-created. The managers assumed that the solution was a whole complex newsletter, rather than asking for ideas. Secondly, they made it the responsibility of only a few people, rather than a company-wide initiative. If the company was complaining, why shouldn't the whole company participate? Lastly, they essentially forced three people into it. By directly asking people to do it, they did not give them a real choice. Think about this. When someone of authority and power comes to you and recommends you do something, do you really have a choice when they hold your job over your head? Of course, the three did a good job with the first one as managers selected strong performers. However, their performance was not sustained because they didn't have a lasting passion for it. The only way to get people who truly care is to make it opt-in so that they self-select. Yes, if the work is part of their job description, then they already opted in a long time ago. However, if this is a non-essential project, like a newsletter, then the most effective way to enlist help is to see who shows up. Look for who says, I want to do that, and then give that person the authority to find the passionate people in each department who want to share information and ask them to help with the writing, editing, etc. What I hope you're seeing is that while this type of approach means giving up direct control over outcomes and people, it's ultimately a lot less work and a lot more fun for everyone involved. People are not proactive. This tends to be the scenario. You've empowered them. You've given them the right to run with projects and make decisions, but they're just not doing it. It's easy to blame them, but great leaders take full responsibility. Here's how to bring it back within your own power. Special thanks to Gary Hamill, author of What Matters Now, for inspiring this conversation. One, do they have skills? And do they believe they have the skills? You can go ahead and ask them. A little training goes a long way. Two, encourage consultations through the process. Make yourself available for them to ask questions and check in. Better yet, proactively check in with them as they are doing it for the first time because often they don't want to disturb you since you look so busy. Three, give assurances of safety. They think they'll be fired if they screw up, so let them know that if anything goes wrong, you will be looking at the full context of what happened. Yes, if there's complete negligence, they will be held accountable, but you will definitely look at each and every variable as you review the results. Everyone is so entitled. With all this great culture you're creating, some people may begin to feel entitled. So what is an entitlement? If people expect it, it's an entitlement. And that's not a bad thing. People do expect to be paid. You can't fault them if they're upset when they don't get a paycheck. It tends to be a larger issue if the expectation is unrealistic. So one solution is to lower the expectations. Don't give bonuses every year. Make it more random so that people can't expect it. The alternative is to constantly go above and beyond the expectation, which, as wonderful as it is, becomes hard to sustain. So what causes the feeling of entitlement? First, the problem can sometimes be a lack of first-hand understanding. I was fortunate enough to grow up eating in restaurants. I would then feel upset if I did not get top service, and that's what I felt entitled to. Then I took a job working as both a bartender and a waiter. I learned firsthand how hard it is to work the kitchen, balance demands, deal with irate customers, fill in when the place is, quote-unquote, man down. 
and all of this for very little pay. Ever since that summer, I'm completely patient with waiters and always tip at least 20%. It only took one job for this new appreciation to stay with me my entire life. The first issue causing entitlement can be dealt with through proper cross-training, as well as setting a level of service that everyone must meet. At Zappos, as we have seen, every employee is trained to do customer service. In addition, each one, including the CEO, must take 10 hours of calls during the holiday season. But there's a better conversation to be held around entitlement, and that starts by asking, what is the opposite of entitlement? It's gratitude. If you focus on what you don't want, you'll get more of it. Instead, focus on what you do want, which is a culture that feels lucky and feels grateful. Appreciation is all about noticing what I am personally thankful for, and a sense of entitlement simply doesn't exist when gratitude is present. Also, gratitude is essential in developing happiness. According to a Gallup poll, 95% of people associate gratitude with being at least somewhat happy, and 50% feel extremely happy when gratitude washes over them. Part of Dr. Martin Seligman's seminal book on positive psychology, Authentic Happiness, includes exercises designed to help one feel and express more gratitude. The Morning Meeting The morning meeting is a simple way to create a culture of gratitude. Each day, have the person on the team say two things. One, something that they are excited about or grateful for, and two, their main focus for the day. This stimulates positive emotions as well as focus and productivity. Notice the difference in the feeling every day. It's all because we've intentionally set up what we're focusing on in our language. The delay. Know it's coming. To understand culture, it helps to think about it as a system. As we mentioned, systems have feedback loops, leverage points, and supplies that flow in and out. A basic example is a shower. You have hot and cold controllers. You get feedback by feeling the water, and then you adjust that flow. The mistake is to assume that turning the hot water knob will immediately get you hot water. Instead, there are delays as the water goes through the pipes. If you don't take that into account, you will get scalded. And if you overreact by immediately turning the knobs again, then it will get too cold. So how does this apply to culture? Well, instead of water, we have values. And the controls are the rituals, programs, and policies we introduce to increase the presence of that value. But Keep in mind that there will be a delay. The delay can come in various ways. The change may actually cause other parts of the system to break. It's best to try to anticipate these, but when we can't, we call that learning. It may cause a drop in productivity as people have to adjust. It could mean lower revenue or lower profits, but the one factor to really be aware of is that people can just be downright resistant, even if it's for their own good. The biggest question is what is your personal commitment to change? As we grew Zappos Insights, I made it a policy that we had to try things as a beta test first. Information on how to do this is in the beta blueprint section. People made fun of it for a long time. They got frustrated with it, but they also saw I was completely undeterred. After a while, they simply started to do it on their own. And finally, it became part of our culture and our language. Good habits will often come with a delay before the benefits. And the delay may be painful. But again, it's a question of commitment. Bad policies for short-term gains are a tempting hit from the crack pipe that makes you worse in the long term. It could be seen when Starbucks put a focus on efficiency at the expense of the coffee experience. They saved money initially, but eventually the change led to a significant dip in revenue. 
Howard Schultz himself had to come back to realign the company to its values. Are you truly committed? Now is the time. If you've not taken action yet, why not? Are you truly committed to doing this? If not, then think about what you are truly committed to. It could be to trying out one small change, or it could be as big as revolutionizing your whole company. Here's how to figure out what's worth committing to. Hold this as a promise to yourself. If it's not a hell yeah, then it's a no. To see the original writing on this statement, see sivers.org slash hell yeah. This is a principle for creating the structure of an epic life. Don't leave it up to chance. Have you ever committed to plans for a Saturday night and then it rolled around and you felt lukewarm about them? The next thing you knew, you were following those plans anyway, not because you were committed, but because you said you would. You wished you could stay home. My policy for a Saturday night is to only commit to something that would be so great that I would want to do it no matter what mood I was in and no matter how tired. If it's not a hell yeah, then it's a no. Use this sentence as a structure for an epic life. That way, you don't leave it up to chance. Conclusion. As you can see, designing and shifting a culture is quite a journey. However, the best companies in the world have shown that it is well worth it. The most important thing you can do is just to start. Make it a priority, not once, but every day. We need your stories. I would love to hear your feedback, your stories, and your tools for the 2.0 version of the book. So please visit www.cultureblueprint.com and tell me about your journey. Remember, first and foremost, that culture is a feeling, and you can change that immediately by starting with yourself. Read the installer. Before embarking on any change, I recommend reading the installer section. Always co-create and make it opt-in. If you still don't know where to start, remember this. The first step is the right step. The Culture Blueprint was read by Robert Richman. Directed by Bradley Blannon. Recorded and engineered by Jaime Velez. Mixed by Jaime Velez and Liz Robeson at Temple Base Studios in Hollywood, California.